1924 at the Olympic Games, Eric Little was scheduled to run in the 100 and 200 metres. But the heats were scheduled for the Lord's Day. And Eric Little refused to compete on the Sabbath day. And despite pressure from the British Olympic Committee and from the Prince Regent, he maintained his refusal. Although he entered the 400 metres, which is a very different event, much, much more taxing. Um, It's like a middle distance event crossed with a sprint. You've got to start fast and keep going fast. And Little wasn't favoured in it at all. He only had a couple of months preparation. And before he went out to race, somebody gave him a piece of paper. And on that piece of paper, it said, the old book says, those who honour me, I will honour. That's the verse that's in our passage today. First Samuel chapter 2 and verse 30. And very literally, that came true for Eric Little in the 400 metres final. He set out as fast as he could go, or so they thought. They all thought that he would fade in the closing parts of the race, but... He led from start to finish. They couldn't catch him. And uh, I was watching video footage of it, old, old film footage of it, and the other runners were trying that hard to catch him. But one of them uh, collapses before he even makes the finish line. And Eric Little, uh, who had sought to honour God, was honoured by God for the stand he took. We don't remember the name of Harold Abrams, uh, the winner of the 100 metres. But Eric Little is known across the world and Alan Wells, a Scottish sprinter who won gold in Moscow in 1980 when he was asked uh, when he won gold in the 100 metres how he felt. He said that one was for Eric Little. Uh, We see in Little's life the, the impact and the truth of this verse that is at the center really of our passage this morning. It's a it's a big passage. And I've taken that big passage for a reason because it illustrates both sides of that verse. That verse sits like a a pivot in the middle of the passage. On one side, really, you've got Esau's sons. And on the other side of it, you've got the rising influence of Samuel. And chapter 2 and and verse 30, uh, the whole verse is important because... The bit that was quoted to Little is only a small part of the verse. It's only half the verse. And in fact, it's not even, in a sense, the force of the verse. The force of the verse actually lies in the phrase that comes next. Those who honour me, I will honour. But those who despise me will be disdained. It's a verse that has a promise in it but has a colossal warning as well. And we want to look at this this morning. Uh, I want to see the the two sides of the verse. I want to see the honouring of the honourers and the despising of the despisers. That's uh, what we see in the, the verse and in the chapter. It's been 300 years of dark times since they entered into 
the promised land, as it was called. And last week, you met Hannah. Uh, Hannah is barren and broken. And she's a picture of Israel's barrenness and brokenness. And yet we saw how a shaft of light pierces into the darkness. She asks for a son and God answers. And hope breaks into Hannah's life. But the reason that little story is at the beginning of this book is because it is a a picture, a model for what God is doing for Israel. Hope is about to burst into Israel. We're going to see more of that uh, today. But first of all, we want to think of the despising of the despisers. I want to think of the despising of the despisers. Uh, in her prayer, so look at this evening, Hannah spoke of the arrogant, the mighty, and the wicked, and that they would be judged by God. But shockingly, as we read on in chapter 2, we find that the arrogant, the mighty, and the wicked who are going to be judged aren't outside the nation of Israel. They are inside it. Israel was meant to be a light to the nations, but the light is broken. And there's darkness at the heart of the light. And it is bleak when the place that is meant to be the light is in darkness. Eli's sons, in verse 12, Hophni and Phinehas are called wicked men. Or maybe in your version they're called scoundrels. Or worthless men. The the Hebrew phrase means sons of worthlessness. Or wickedness. They're, they were just useless, wicked wasters. And the, the writer uh, sets out to show us that. Even the next phrase tells us they had no regard for God. For they did not know the Lord, is literally what that phrase means. They knew about Him, but they didn't know Him. They had no relationship with Him. And it's dark when the, there's darkness in the very place where there's meant to be light. And we see a couple of things. The way the story's set out for us here, there's, first of all, a despising of holiness. There's a despising of holiness. The, the men, men who are meant to be holy men were unholy holy men. And we see that in different ways. Verse 13, we read that whenever the people brought their sacrifices... Um, whenever they brought their sacrifices to the temple, that the, the priest would send a servant with a huge three-pronged fork to stick it into the, the cooking pot and to take whatever came out. Uh, now, God had already set aside the breast of the animal and the right leg of the animal to be for the priest. So this is a taking of even more. And there's this despising of the holy things. You can see them lying on a couch, bellowing, go on, go on, go and get us some more meat. They don't even go themselves. Verse 29 says, You scorn my sacrifices. Literally, you kick my sacrifices. The Hebrew is just a very vivid language. You kick them, you treat them as if they're rubbish. But more than that, in verse 15 we read that even before the fat was burned, that they would send uh, for the meat, saying, give the priest some meat to roast. He won't accept boiled meat from you, only raw. And if the, the person sacrificing said, let the fat be burned first. Now, we don't get this. But back in Leviticus, God had said, 
that the fat was for him. It was devoted to him only. It was to be fully burned. And yet these men are saying, no, no, no. They're not just despising the people. They're despising God. And they're treating as unholy the things that were for God. And then there's more to come. We find in verse 22 that his sons, Eli hears that his sons uh, were sleeping with the woman who served at the entrance to the tent of meeting. There's an abuse of God's people. There's an abuse of God, as it were, and there's an abuse of power. There's a despising of all that's holy. And that's what happened at the pagan temples. The priests engaged in activities with the woman who came. That was the way of Baal and Asherah, the cults of Canaan, with their temple woman. And there's, there's a deep irony in this. Perhaps if you've read earlier in the Old Testament, you know the name Phineas. He's one of Aaron's grandsons. And there was a time whenever the Israelites were engaging in sexual immorality with the, the Canaanite woman. And they had the people, Moses had summoned the people to rebuke them. And, and some wretch went traipsing off towards his tent hand in hand with some Canaanite woman. And a man called Phineas was outraged that as they were being rebuked for the very thing, some bounder takes it on himself to despise God's ways and God's word. And he goes in after them. And he takes his spear and he ran it through both of them. And Phineas was honoured by God for that. Now fast forward several generations and there's a man named after that man. And what's he doing? He's doing the very opposite of what his ancestor or the man he was named after was honoured for. It just emphasises the unholiness of these supposed holy men. There's a despising of holiness. But also there's a despising of authority. There's a despising of of authority. As we read on here, uh, we find that, and there's two ways to despise authority. You can despise authority by kicking against it. That's what we read of in lots of other places in the Bible, but you can despise authority by failing to impose it. And that's what we see here. In the next part of the passage, we see Eli failing to impose authority either as a father or as a judge. He was a judge in Israel or as a priest. He goes to his sons, yes, and and he says to his sons in verse 23, Why do you do such things? I hear from all the people about these wicked deeds of yours. No, my sons, it is not a good report that I hear spreading among the Lord's people. And then we read, His sons, however, did not listen to their father's rebuke. Sons didn't listen. They despise authority. But God holds Eli accountable. God holds Eli accountable. He sends Eli, an unnamed prophet, in verse 27, to rebuke him. In verse 29, he says to Eli, Why do you scorn my sacrifice and offering that I prescribe for my dwelling? Why do you honor your sons. I hear the echo of a verse. Those who honor me, I will honor. Why do you honor your sons more than me? By fattening yourselves. It's not just that Eli 
was rebuking his sons. Eli was eating the meat with his sons. And we read in chapter 4, verse 18, that he falls off his chair and breaks his neck because he was a heavy man. Imagine this fat, corpulent man. Uh, And yes, he's a mix of an individual. There's a mix there because he is seeking in some ways to call them back to God's ways and he does is used by God to instruct Samuel. But there's a lack of authority in his home. And more than that, there's a lack of authority in his state, in his jurisdiction. Dale Ralph Davis says he couldn't, you know, it was maybe too late to stop them sinning. But he could at least have stopped them sinning as priests. He could have removed them from the priesthood. That was well within his remit. He could have had them serve somewhere else or or removed from service altogether. But that's not what they do. That's not what he does. He despises the authority given to him. And it, it seems as if for Eli it was okay to offend God. But it wasn't okay to have the whole countryside talking about it. He says to his sons, I hear from all the people. Verse 23. Verse 24. The report I hear spreading among the Lord's people is not good. His priorities are upside down and back to front. And we have here just a little portrait. A despising of the authority given to him both as a father, as a priest, and as a judge. He didn't back up what he said with action. And that's a warning to all of us, particularly those of us who are parents. Uh, Our children need to learn that no means no, and that now means now, not when they think. Otherwise, when they're older, trouble brews. They need to learn for the sake of their own soul to obey authority. These boys did not obey their father. And it is going to be to their eternal detriment. So a despising of the despisers. And God speaks judgment into this family. And it's somber and it's sobering. They have despised God. And God has said enough is enough. And verse 25 is very potent. Verse 25, we read, His sons, however, did not listen to their father's rebuke, for it was the Lord's will to put them to death. Not, therefore, it was the Lord's will. God is not putting them to death because they didn't listen to their father. At this point, they were unable to listen to their father. Because God had already determined enough is enough. You've trampled on my people. You have disregarded my sacrifice. You have dishonored me. Enough is enough. Those, God says, who despise me, I will disdain. Here's the despising. Of the despisers. What a sobering part of God's word. But there's a second side to the the coin. There's the honouring of the honourers. 
there is such a word. The honouring of the honourers. Those who honour me, God says, I will honour. And if there's a huge warning to the... And you see, this isn't... This, the people, who are the people who are doing the despising here? It's not the nations. We expect that of the nations. It's the people of God that are engaged in this despising of holiness, this rejection of authority. People who claim to be God's people, who aren't sitting under God's word, but who are sitting in judgment on God's word and saying, we'll do what we want. We will live life our way. They're the ones who are despising, despising what God has said. And we need to be very, very careful because God says enough, enough. Those who honor me, I will honor, but those who despise me, I will disdain. Then at the second side of the coin, the honoring of the honorers. And as we start to look through this, we see Samuel's allegiance. We see it growing. We see Samuel's allegiance growing. It, it shines like a little ray of light through the darkness that is chapter 2. Chapter 2, verse 11, we read, The boy ministered before the Lord under Eli the priest. And then we've got the wicked sons. And then verse 18, But Samuel was ministering before the Lord wearing a linen ephod. The other sons weren't, but Samuel, the adopted son, was. And then we've got this little glimpse of God through what he says through Eli to Hannah of God's kindness and patience shining like a light into the darkness. But more than that, I believe that it's fueling and feeding Samuel's growing allegiance to God as he sees that his mum had put God first And she had prayed for a son and promised that that son would be given over to God. And God honoured her by giving her more children. Three sons and two daughters. And Samuel's beginning to see that those who honour God are not shortchanged. And this is fueling his allegiance to God. Fueling his sense of, I should honour God. This is a worthwhile thing to do. And we, we, we come to a contrast in verses 25 and 26. His sons, Levi's sons, it was the Lord's will to put them to death. Verse 26, and the boy Samuel continued to grow in stature and in favor with the Lord and with men. Here's Samuel's honoring. His allegiance to God is growing and being fueled by God. And as we move uh, towards uh, chapter 3, we're going to find uh, Simon's allegiance being fueled in another way. God's word starts to come to him. In chapter 3, verse 1, we read the boy Samuel ministered before the Lord under Eli. I think it's noteworthy that it doesn't say anymore Eli the priest, like it did in chapter 2, verse 11. The phrase is almost word for word the same. But Samuel's the one ministering. Before the Lord, under Eli. Eli has been superseded. But now as we enter chapter 3, we see more light dawning. 
more light coming into the darkness. We read in those days the word of the Lord was rare. There were not many visions. There's a famine of the word of God. But God starts to speak to Samuel. God's word starts to come to Samuel. And we start to read about it. And it's, it's a beautiful little piece, isn't it? Visions were rare. The word of God was rare. But one night, and look at how it's described. Eli, his eyesight is dimming and the light is about to go out in the temple. It's a great picture of the, the spiritual state of Israel. The people are blind and the lights are low in terms of God's house. And look where the people are. Eli is in his usual place, but we're told, Samuel, where's he lying down? In the temple of the Lord, where the ark of God was. There's almost an eagerness and a hunger in Samuel. It's as if he say, I want to be as close to God as I physically can be. Here's his allegiance growing and being fueled and being displayed. Whenever God had said, those who honour me, I will honour you. could almost imagine Samuel saying, well, I want to honour him. How can I honour him? Well, I can serve him and I can get as close to him as I possibly can. And that's what he's doing here. And then there's a voice. And Samuel, we're told, he doesn't yet know the Lord, for the Lord had not yet spoken to him. He doesn't know whose voice it is. And he runs to Eli and says, you called? And Eli says, not me. Go back and lie down and he goes and lies down and this happens another two times and then the penny drops with Eli. Stop. He's not dreaming, Samuel. He's not, he's not imagining this. It must be God calling him. And he briefs Samuel on what to do. And God doesn't just call him. Look at verse 10. The Lord appeared. The Lord appeared and called, uh, yes, verse 10, the Lord came and stood there calling as at the other times. Vision was rare, but not now. Word was rare, but not anymore. Here's the, the building up of Samuel uh, to honor God and to put God first. God's word is coming to him. And Samuel is told clearly that judgment is going to come on Eli's family, as the unnamed prophet had told Eli. And having seen Samuel, his allegiance to God being built up and nourished and growing over the last period of time, now that we see here Samuel's allegiance tested. What's he going to do with this news? It's bleak and hard. And he goes and he lies down and he sleeps the rest of the night. And the next morning... Eli says, tell me what was said. You could almost imagine Samuel wavering. And Eli says to him, tell me. Tell me. And in uh, verse uh, 17, he says, do not hide it from me. May the Lord deal with you, be it ever so severely. If you hide from me anything, he told you. Eli, for all his mixed up allegiance to God and to his sons, is schooling Samuel here. Doesn't matter how unpalatable, unpalatable it is what God has said. You don't hide it. You pass it on. You share it. You believe it. No matter how hard it might be, no matter how much trouble it might cause to those close to him, Samuel is being tested. 
Will he honor God as a prophet? Will he do what God calls him to do and to speak his word no matter what the pressure is? And that's what he's going to need to do to be a spokesman for God in the land of Israel, in a godless world. He's got to speak God's message without watering it down. Those who honor me, I will honor. Those who stand by my word and don't change it, I will honor, God is saying. And Samuel is learning. And we see him doing that. He doesn't water it down. He passes it on in all its severity. And Eli accepts it as the judgment of God. And Samuel has come through this test of his allegiance. Will he honor God? Or will he do what Eli had done? Eli had honored his sons more than he honored God. Will Samuel honor Eli more than he honored God? Will Samuel come through it with blazing colors? And then the third thing we see about his allegiance. We see his allegiance honored. We see his allegiance honored in verses 19 on into the very first phrase of chapter 4. Samuel has stood by what God said to him. And what do we read? Verse 19, God stands by him. The Lord was with Samuel and he let none of Samuel's words fall to the ground. Samuel was heard. Eli's words were ignored by his sons, but Samuel's words weren't. In fact, it wasn't just those in-round Shiloh that heard them. Verse 20, all Israel from Dan to Beersheba recognized that Samuel was attested as a prophet from the Lord. That's from the north to the south of the country. God honored Samuel. The Lord continued to appear at Shiloh, and there he revealed himself to Samuel through his word. He kept on speaking to Samuel and appearing to him. What a contrast, the end of the chapter, with the beginning. In those days, the word of the Lord was rare, and there were not many visions. And now God is speaking to Samuel. And then verse 1, And Samuel's word came to all Israel. The silence is broken. There is now an authorized, authenticated, attested prophet of God in their midst. And Samuel is honored. And Samuel is honored in a further way. Samuel is, in chapter 2, is set out as the faithful priest. In chapter 3, he's set out as the faithful prophet. And in the rest of the story of Samuel, we're going to see him as the faithful ruler. And Samuel gets to paint a portrait of the one who will be a priest and a prophet and a king, the Lord Jesus Christ. And he gets to paint in his life a miniature of Christ-likeness and Christ's work and ministry. Those who honor me, I will honor, God says. That's the lesson of this section of God's Word. We despise God and His ways. That's a railroad to ruin. We, no matter how hard it is, we cling to God's word, we believe God's word, we stand for God's word, God says, well done, good and faithful servant. And into a world of lostness, he sends his people to be little models and portraits of Christ so that the world can be changed. And that's what we see. So, as we come to an end, let me finish with 
a number of conclusions. One, let's heed the warning that comes in this chapter. What a solemn and serious warning not to back off God's word, not to despise God's holiness, not to reject God's authority over us, and not to to reject even imposing God's authority in whatever role he has placed us in. God holds us accountable. It's one of the things we were reminding the politicians and will be reminding. God has put them in authority. And they are called to exercise that authority according to his word. And they will be answerable to him for how they've done that. Like Eli was. So let's heed the warning. Secondly, let's honour God. How? By standing firm on his word. That's what Eric Little did. He stood firm on God's word. He held to it. And God honoured him for that. So let's stand firm on God's word. Let's stand firm on it as individuals. Let's stand firm on it as a church. Let's not water it down. Let's hold to it as it is because his ways are best. We might think, and in century 21 people tell us that God's word needs updated. How can the word of a timeless God who knows all things ever need updated? That's like saying, well, here's something that happened in century 21 that he couldn't have foreseen. Nonsense. He knows the end. From before the beginning even begins, he knows century 21 and 81 and 2021, long before anything ever started. His word is timeless. So let us honor God by standing firm in his word. And here's something that I think is really helpful. Third application. Let us honor God by speaking out his word. Let us honour God by speaking out his word. This is what begins to change Samuel's world. The world around Samuel. God's word comes into it. God's word comes into the mess. There had been a famine of God's word. And now God's word starts to come into it. And things start to change. And that's what our world needs. It needs the word of God to come into it. Now, we are not going to be prophets like Samuel hearing a direct word from God because we have it written down, locked in, in paper and ink in front of us. The full thing. Samuel only had little bits and pieces. We've got the full package deal of God's word. The full revelation. And God has spoken to us. So, well, before we can speak it, we need to hear it. So let me encourage each of you to be engaged in reading your Bibles. Let there not be a famine of the Word in your life. Let there not be a chapter 3 verse 1 in your soul. The Word of the Lord was rare. Let that not be. And if it's become that way, let's get back to the Word of God that refreshes our soul. The entrance of God's Word gives light, we're told in Psalm 119. And so it needs to come into us. And then let's speak it out into the world. I don't mean that we run around grabbing people by the scruff of the neck and roaring Bible verses in their faces. 
That's not what I mean. But let's speak God's word into the world around us. We don't need flashy gimmicks. We don't need any new trendy ways of doing things. We've got God's word and it's powerful and effective. Just this week I was listening, I was talking to one of our ministers, Malcolm Ball, who's a missionary in France, and he was telling me about how he came to know Jesus as his saviour. minister happened to make passing reference to a line in the book of Proverbs that sand is weighty. And this preacher said, well, sand isn't weighty. There's a little grain of sand that's not heavy. But take a thousand grains. That's only an egg cup. And take a million grains and take two million and ten million and it becomes heavy and heavy. He says, our sins are like little grains of sand. They mightn't seem much to you, but they mount up and they become weighty and they will drag you down. And the word of God went like an extra-set missile into the heart and soul of Malcolm Ball. A little phrase about sand struck him and exploded in his conscience. You never know which part of God's word will strike people. And so one of the things we want to do is to introduce people to God's word. Maybe Christianity explored. Or point them to Psalms in times of trouble. Give them pointers on how to read the Bible. Not to use it like a lucky dip, but to read chapters and books. Let's point them to God's word. There's a current fad. I see it in different ways, in different places, where people say things like, uh, you know, if you don't take a day off in the week, then the time will come when your body will take a day off for you. I think, hmm, you've just discovered this. Strange how God said that we were to take one day in seven to rest. You know, he, pre- he said this long ago. You know, our maker knows how we're designed. You know, it's, it's a way of bringing God's word into it with a little bit of irony or levity. Making the point that actually it wasn't such a bad idea after all. What God said. Speaking God's word into our world. Let's not lose confidence in the power of God's word. We need to be reminded of this in our world today where we are told by our world to pipe down and to keep quiet and to keep that outdated book out of public life. God says, those who despise me, I will despise. And those who honor me, I will honor. My word is the way the world is changed. So let's not lose our confidence in it. And let's not hide our faith But let's take a stand like Eric Little did and honour God, knowing that he honours those who honour him. Amen. Let's stand, if we're able, and come to God in prayer. Father in heaven, what a great promise. Let it seep into our bones like nutrients and nutrition that will strengthen us. Let it seep into our souls like molten steel that will solidify and put steel in our backbone to stand on your word. Let it influence our minds so that we will see the potency of your word in a world that says pipe down and keep quiet. And Lord, help us not to despise holiness or to despise authority, your authority, 
but help us to live under it and to live godly lives, knowing that those who honor you, you will honor. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.